described by the Washington Post in 1978 as the American Dyatlov Pass. It concerns the curious, bizarre, tragic, and ultimately still unsolved case of the death of four young men in the woods. There was some force that made them go up there. Jack Madruga's mother, Mabel, says firmly. It had started out with five men. One was now missing, and the other four were dead. One of the deceased was found in a cabin. This cabin had enough food and fuel to heat it to last for several months, but this fuel was never used, and most of the food was still uneaten. And the man found dead inside had lost over one hundred pounds. He was found wrapped like a shroud. Three of the other men were found dead outside the cabin, in various conditions throughout the woods that lined the cabin. Cynthia Gorney for the Washington Post wrote, "There was a half moon that night, a winter moon in a cloudless sky." Up in the mountains above the Feather River, the snowdrift sometimes rose to fifteen feet. It was February the twenty-fourth, nineteen seventy-eight. Five young men left a basketball game at ten p.m. at the California State University in Chico, got into their Mercury Montego car, and drove off. Three blocks away, they pulled over. At a late-night store, where they bought two fruit pies, a Snickers, a Marathon, some milk, and two Pepsi's. All of the young men lived at home, and although their families referred to them as boys, they were grown men. Jackie Hewitt was the youngest at twenty-four, and Ted Wire was the oldest at thirty-two. Three of the boys. Had been diagnosed as being mentally retarded. Jack Madruga had not been diagnosed, but according to his mother, he was also slow. Gary Mathias had been taking drugs for schizophrenia, which had been diagnosed five years earlier, but his doctor and his family said that this condition had not resurfaced in the last two years. As it was being successfully managed by his medication, they'd all been due to play in a basketball tournament the next day for the Gateway Gators as part of the Yuba City Vocational Rehabilitation Center for the Handicapped. Yuba, lying between Plumas National Forest and Mendocino National Forest. But none of them came home that night, and despite the families calling each other, no one had any clue where they might be. They'd never stayed out for the night before. Ted's mother said Ted wouldn't have missed this game for anything. He'd gone to the Special Olympics playoffs in L.A. last year, and he'd gotten everyone's autographs. He even had his basketball clothes all laid out in his room, ready. With the intense and prolonged search for the five friends, by the sheriffs and relatives, was to prove fruitless. A woman 
who wished to remain anonymous, contacted the police to say that she had seen the five men outside Mary's County store in Brownsville, a small town more than an hour's drive over backcountry roads from Rogers Cow Camp, where their vehicle would later be found. But the woman did not report her information to the sheriff's officers until March the 3rd, after the missing men's posters and reward information had been circulated with their pictures. County Sheriff's Lieutenant Dennis Moore said that he believed she was a credible witness and they were taking her information seriously. Well, a search then followed in that small town for the missing men. According to the woman, two of them were in a pickup truck, another two of them were at the outside telephone booth, and the fifth man was inside the store. She said, I noticed them because they didn't look from this area, and you notice strangers around here, especially with their big eyes and facial expressions. Regarding a possible pickup truck, a second person said she saw the five men in a red 1950s pickup at about 2pm that Saturday. But if they were in another vehicle, whose vehicle was this? And how and why did they get into it? On February the 28th, four days after, they found Jack Madruga's 1969 turquoise-and-white Montego, and, as reporter Gorney writes, from that day on, nothing they found, nothing anybody told them, seemed to make any sense. The car was discovered 70 miles from Chico, on a deserted and rut-ravaged mountain road. Later, investigators would express disbelief that the car could have even got to the location it got to without sustaining serious and irreparable damage. The car had stopped at the snow line, and although investigators could see that the car's tyres had apparently spun a little, the vehicle was not actually stuck. Five strapping young men could very easily have dislodged it and driven on. But more curious than this was why on earth they would have driven there in the first place. The undercarriage of the car was undamaged, despite having a low-hanging muffler, and despite it ending up a stretch of incredibly bumpy mountain road that was driven in complete darkness. The investigators could not understand how there were no dents, no scratches, no gouges, or even any layers of mud to show for their journey. Their conclusion was that the car driver had used the most astonishing precision, accuracy and care to have driven the car so far, yet completely unscathed, or the driver knew the road so well that they could navigate every single tiny rut, hole and bump in the dark, with laser-like accuracy, which still seemed impossible regardless. Well, the parents said that they'd never known the boys to go to that area. They said they were not the outdoors or adventurous type, and because of their slight disabilities, it was not an expedition 
their parents would have dreamed them to have gone on. The family said that Madruga only ever drove the car. He would never let any of his friends drive it, ever. His parents were adamant that he also did not know that road at all. And they added that he was absolutely not a friend of the cold. He would avoid it at all cost. Sterling's father said that he had taken his son fishing once at a cabin, not too many miles away, but the boy had not enjoyed it at all. And from then on, over eight years, he had never gone on any more outdoor trips. His parents still went. But he would always stay at home. For Weiner, he had gone once on a deer hunting trip, but this was nowhere near where the car was found, and he too had not enjoyed it and had not wanted to go into the forest again either, according to his parents. Only Matthias had ever stayed out at all, overnight, with friends. But all the others were really stay-at-home types, and they preferred stability and predictability in their daily lives. There wasn't one in any of their families who could fathom what could have taken them to that destination, all the way along that precarious road in the mountains, among the forest. Families and friends of the men and sheriffs, investigators. Found themselves grasping at the few hard facts in the case, and trying to construct theories with so little clues. But what was most desperately strange was that none of the theories really explained why they could have driven in the dead of night into the forest. It was not a question either of them running out of gas. The gas tank was found to be a quarter full. The keys to the vehicle were gone, but when police attempted to hotwire the car, the engine started on first try. So there was nothing faulty with the engine. Inside the glove compartment, they found four maps, although they were all neatly folded up, so they didn't appear to have been used. On the car seats inside were scattered wrappers of candy. And this matched the purchases that they'd made at the late night store. But again, it wasn't just that the driver didn't know where the road was, where the car was found, but none of the boys did, according to their families. And they would know this because the boys all lived at home still, and they always stuck to their routines, which the families knew intimately. So why had they driven into the Pumas National Forest Service Road? Seventy miles away from Chico, the snow at the time was six to eight feet deep. The terrain surrounding the car was rocky and mountainous, and very thick forest. They were not suitably dressed at all for walking anywhere in the snow. They were wearing casual streetwear. And low-cut shoes. John Thompson, the special agent from the California Department of Justice, called the case simply bizarre.
he said there are no explanations. According to Deputy Sheriff Richard Stenberg, there was no evidence of foul play at the car's location. He said the car was littered with candy wrappers, basketball programs, milk cartons, and other material indicating a good time. We found no trace of the men during a five-day search. When the car was discovered, a snowstorm laid almost ten inches of snow on the ground, and searching was extremely difficult. Despite having snow cats, it was hard to make progress through the snow. But regardless, the search team did their best, but they found no signs of the five men who'd been in the car. No trace of them at all was found. Relatives and law enforcement officers began searching the area, but a severe blizzard had blanketed it, hampering their efforts and perhaps covering possible tracks. The police discovered that Matthias knew people in Forbes Town, about halfway between Chico and Yuba cities, and locals say that the route is on a road with a turn-off that is easy to miss. That anybody driving late at night, without good knowledge of the route, might have ended up heading north toward the mountains and got lost. But the thing was, these friends hadn't heard from Matthias in over two years. He'd never gone up there by car to see them, and he didn't know the way. The LA Times of March tenth, nineteen seventy-eight, writes, adding to the mystery. A Sacramento man apparently saw the 1969 Mercury Sports Coupe had been mired in a 10-inch snow on a gravel recreational road northeast of Oroville in Butte County's rugged Rogers Cow Camp area. Well, this site was at 4,000 feet elevation, more than two hours from Chico by car, and of course far off the direct auto route. We'll fast forward to the spring thaw, and in June, a group of motorcyclists wandered across a deserted forestry service camper at the end of the service road. It was the smell that hit them first. On entering the trailer, the stench was overpowering, and they saw a body on a bed stretched out and covered up by sheets. In a style as though he'd been wrapped up into a shroud, the body was later identified as one of the five missing men. It was Ted Wire, and he'd frozen to death. Eight sheets had been pulled over his body and tucked around his head. He wore no shoes, and his shoes appeared to be missing from the trailer. Matthias' sneakers, however, were there, and the investigators hypothesized that he maybe swapped them for Wyer's leather shoes, possibly after he could have developed frostbite. On a small table beside the bed lie the ring that he used to wear, along with a gold chain that was his, and his wallet with cash still inside of it. There was also a gold watch, but its crystal was missing. 
the families of the five boys, said that they did not recognise the watch and it was not believed to belong to any of them. Had a stranger been there with him? Or had it belonged to a forest ranger, months or years earlier, who had discarded it there because it was broken? Well, the sparse evidence so far uncovered indicates that at least one of the other missing men had also sought safety in the shelter and then left it. As for Ted, underneath the shroud, his body was emaciated. He'd lost an approximate 100 pounds in weight. He'd developed frostbite on his feet at some point. But curiously, according to the coroner, the growth of his beard showed that he had lived, although starving, inside this abandoned trailer from anywhere from between 8 to 13 weeks. The trailer was 20 miles from where their car had been found abandoned. Somehow, for some reason, he had made it 20 miles from that car, wearing just a thin shirt, lightweight pants and lightweight shoes. He had walked, or run, for some reason, from the warmth and safety of the car and ended up 20 miles away in a trailer. He'd travelled on foot through snow that was up to six feet deep for 20 miles until he came to the abandoned trailer. He, or someone, had then broken into the trailer through a window. Matches were found inside the trailer, but they had not been used to make a fire. There was also a pile of paperback novels, and the furniture inside was made of wood. Plenty to start a fire with. A storage shed, which sat next to the trailer, had been opened, and from this, at least twelve Russian food cans had been opened and emptied. One was determined to have been opened using an army-issue can opener. Well, both the missing Matthias and Madruga had served in the army, so it was assumed that only they would have known how to use the army standards can opener. What hadn't been used, however, was all the dehydrated foods in a locker in that same storage shed. Investigators found enough dehydrated dinners inside the locker to feed all five of the missing men for at least a year, but this was not touched. There was also another storage shed beside the trailer, and this held a propane tank that could have been used to provide heating inside the trailer. They could have had gas in the trailer, said the lead lieutenant investigator Lance Ayers of the Yuba County. All they had to do was turn that gas on and they would have had heat. For Lieutenant Ayers, the search and the mystery of the missing boys was more personal than most cases he dealt with because he'd gone to school with two of them. After Ayers had found no trace of the missing men in the forest or mountains, he'd been so desperate that he'd even chased up on leads given to him by psychics. 
He'd found himself driving around for days on one occasion, looking for a house described by a psychic, in which she said the boy had been taken to and killed. But he'd found no house that matched the description that the psychic gave him. Well, award-winning features writer, and now Professor Emeritus at UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, Cynthia Gorney got a good sense of the missing boys during her research into the case back in the 70s. One of the boys, Ted Wire, had been friendly and was as trusting as a child. She said he waved at strangers and he brooded for hours if they did not wave back. She said he also got a chuckle out of phoning Bill, his friend, and reading oddball names from the phone book. He'd had a couple of jobs, including that of janitor and snack bar server. According to Bill's mother, he would look after Hewitt in a very protective way, and he would dial the phone for him whenever he had to make a call. One of the other missing boys, Jack Madruga, was a school graduate and army vet. He'd recently been laid off from his busboy job. William Sterling, one of the other boys, was Madruga's special friend, deeply religious, and would spend hours at the library reading literature aloud to bring Jesus to patients in mental hospitals. The other, Gary Mathias, was also an army vet, and he helped in his stepfather's gardening business. He'd received a medical psychiatric discharge after drug problems had emerged, and mental problems, while he was serving overseas in the army. On a couple of occasions, it was said that he had also become aggressive and a little violent. Where was Matthias now? His father reported that he'd been taking his medicine weekly as prescribed and as he had taken now for the last two years for the treatment of schizophrenia. His family said that while overseas he had got in trouble for fighting but that this was before his mental difficulty was diagnosed. They were firm in the fact that he had not missed any doses for at least two years and he'd been gamefully employed with his stepfather with no anger or any other issues arising. Well, he has never been found. It seems that Madruga and Sterling didn't make it to the trailer, from what the investigators believed because their bodies were found the next day, just over four miles short of the trailer, but still eleven miles from the car that they'd abandoned in the deep snow. Their bodies were found each on separate sides of the same road. Hewitt's body was now a skeleton, and he was found a little closer to the trailer on the same road. A quarter of a mile northwest of the trailer, Searches found three forestry servant blankets and an old flashlight. On the night of their disappearance, there's also a strange tale involving a man who has a heart attack, a woman carrying a child, the sound of whistling, and a great deal of fear. Mr. Joseph Shones, aged 55 at the time, came forward to speak to police and explain what had happened to him that night and what he'd seen. He said that he had been driving his vehicle up the same astonishingly rocky and bumpy road. 
He said he had been checking the snow line there. The reason he was doing this, he said, was to ensure that he could fetch his wife and daughter up that weekend to stay at his cabin. His car got stuck just before the snow line. In fact, only about 50 metres from where the boy's car would be found. He said he got out of his car and tried to push it free from the snow and the frozen mud, but as he was doing so, he had a heart attack. This was later confirmed to law enforcement by doctors. Fortunately, it was only a minor heart attack, and he did survive. But he said that on feeling the heart attack happening, he managed to get back inside his vehicle and turn the engine on to keep warm. He lay back in his car and hoped for the symptoms to pass. At some point later that night, he says he heard the sound of whistling. The whistling seemed to be coming from a little way down the road, and it made him get out of his car to see who was coming. He said that he saw what looked like a group of men and a woman who was carrying a baby. He said he could see the figures from the light glaring from a vehicle's headlights. He said he thought he could hear them talking, although they were too far off to hear what they said. He said he shouted out for help, but that as soon as he had done this, the headlights of the other vehicle went out and the group stopped talking. He said he then got back in his car and lay back down. Sometime later, he estimates perhaps two hours later, he saw lights close outside his car window. It was flashlight beams, he said. Again, he called out for help. Again, the flashlights went out. And whoever was out there simply disappeared. Or rather, he could neither see them nor hear them. He said he remained in his car until it ran out of gas. He turned it on to provide him with warmth inside the car. And then, still dark, he began to make his way on foot back to a lodge, approximately eight miles away, called the Mountain House. On his way up the mountain drive, he'd called in there to have a drink before he drove on and before his car had got stuck and he'd had the heart attack. So he began his journey back on foot, and as he did so, he said he passed the abandoned car of the four boys. He said that it was around this spot that he believed the voices had been coming from. Well, fast forward to March the 10th, and it was reported that the man was now no longer sure what he had seen or heard. He told reporters, I was half-conscious, not lucid, hallucinating and in a lot of pain. Whether I half-saw or half-imagined a second vehicle, I just don't know. He said that on the morning after, when his wife drove him to hospital after getting home from a ride with the hostel owner, he told his wife he had seen the boy's car. But whether he'd actually seen another car, too, he now no longer knew. 
He said initially he saw two sets of headlights on the night he had the heart attack and shouted at them for help. He said the next day that although he told his wife he'd seen a pickup behind the boy's car, he now does not remember why he said that. A later witness told his wife that he'd seen a pickup truck behind the boy's car at between 11pm and midnight on the night they vanished. Although it's not stated in newspaper reports where this sighting took place, but presumably on a larger main road than on the forestry gravel road where the car had got stuck. Well, a few miles away from the trailer where the body had been found, partly eaten by animals and dragged about ten feet from the forestry road, beside a stream, Madruga's body was found face up. Sterling's body was found in a wooded area close by. There was nothing left of him but his bones scattered all around. The next day, 40 searchers, led by the under-sheriff Dick Stenberg, found the remains of another of the missing men. Hewitt's father joined the search, and it was he who came across the horrifying sight of what later turned out to be his son's backbone. This was northeast of the trailer as were the remains of Sterling and Madruga, going again, away from the direction of their car, 20 miles away. His Levi jeans were there too, and his shoes. The following day, a deputy sheriff found his skull downhill. The Tennessean newspaper wrote, The discovery of the bodies has revived the unanswered questions. Why did they go up there? It bugs the hell out of me, says Forsino, head of the Plumas County search team that looked for the men. Every relative contacted from the five families said it was wholly out of character for the men to go off on the mountain like that. He surmises that Hewitt, confused and horrified after Wire died in the trailer, left the trailer to get away from the body. As for the families, they say we know there's more to it than what's been said. With the melting of the mountain snows, some of the mystery has cleared, says the newspaper. It's known their suffering defied description as they fought to live, at times illogically, even for men of their mental impairments. The bodies of all but Matthias were found last week, and the search continues for him in the mountains about 20 miles west of Quincy. The five friends, all of whom happily lived with their families, unaccountably turned off a freeway on the way home from a basketball game. They drove east rather than south towards home, past Lake Oroville, and wound up on a mountain road until the pavement ended. They followed a dirt track until their vehicle mired down 200 yards into the snow line. They got out, it appears, and walked and ran uphill in the middle of the night, into the deepening drifts. Well, could Matthias have had anything to do with their friend's death? Had he slipped into a psychotic state? All the others were dead, and he was nowhere to be seen. But wouldn't they have had defensive wounds on their bodies? Would the body wrapped in a shroud not have tried to fight back? Or had he been too scared, for weeks, as he was held there by Matthias? But although in the past he'd had problems with aggression, he'd never acted with aggression to any of his friends there. 
There had never been any incidents between them. Could he have maintained an aggression towards them for weeks and weeks, inside a trailer, in the middle of nowhere? The police believe he likely died along with the rest of them, and that his body became covered up by undergrowth and, and buried by it. But still, if this had been the case of Matthias becoming violent, it still didn't answer the question as to why they would drive miles and miles out of the way, end up on a tiny forest road, unless he planned to kill them all, but then they died of starvation and hypothermia, not from being attacked by him. Certainly, all through the long investigation, it was never once suggested that this was all as a result of an act carried out by Matthias. Wearing low-cut shoes, they made their way an incredible 19 miles through six-foot-deep snow. A storm howled most of that night. And as the newspaper says, a lone shelter in a vast wilderness. It was a one in a thousand chance, if not more, that they would come across that trailer. And it would have taken them at least a day, as well as the night, to travel those twenty miles. So somehow they miraculously stumbled across this abandoned forestry service trailer. And yet, they were described as retarded. Well, maybe at first it looks like a terrible, tragic accident, um, growing out of nothing more than simply confusion over how to get home. Said they somehow got lost. But their four bodies seem to tell a tale of having fought a desperate fight for survival in the mountains of the High Sierras. What drove these young men to drive to this isolated, freezing and unknown location? What caused them to abandon their still working car? What made them walk or run nearly 20 miles in six-foot snow? Why were they all found in different spots? How did they manage to find this abandoned trailer in the dark? Why wasn't all the food and the fuel in the cabin used? Well, Jack Madruga's mother said some force made them go up there. They wouldn't have fled off into the wood like a bunch of quail. We know good and well that somebody made them do it. We can't visualise someone getting the upper hand on those five men, but we know it must have been. Well, if someone chased their car up into the mountains, why was their car undamaged, as though it had been driven with absolute pristine precision? Who was using the flashlights and the voices that the man who had the heart attack heard on the same road? And what were the whistling noises? One of their fathers says, I can't understand why Gary would have been that scared. And all those paperbacks in the trailer, and they didn't even build a lousy fire. I can't understand why they didn't do that, unless they were afraid. But he can't imagine what they were afraid of. And neither can the investigators. They can't find any sign of foul play, but they can't explain it. Are we to make the assumption that these mentally disabled boys 
simply abandoned their car and ran into the dark in the middle of the night in snow that was over waist high. Um, two of them had served in the army, so although they were labelled as mentally disabled, two of them had actually been able to function whilst serving in the army. And of course, one of them had a driver's licence. What happened, or what did they see that caused them to run from their car, abandoning all possible safety that night? The driver's door was wound down when it was found. Who were the people that the man said he saw when he was having a heart attack? Was it these five men? What about the woman and the baby? Or was he hallucinating because he was having a heart attack and it was cold? And the light was poor, it was black, it was dark. Could the woman with long hair have been a man? Why did whoever these people were not offer to help the man? Why were they carrying a baby in the middle of the mountains, in the dark, in the middle of snow? But what was making the whistling noise? Local people have insisted that it's simply not possible to take a wrong turn and find yourself on that trail in the middle of the mountains in forest. So why wouldn't they have turned around when they could tell that they were heading off into the middle of nowhere? Why did they continue? They ended up at a much higher elevation than they had started out on. Were they carjacked? Were they abducted? Did they pick up a deranged hitcher? There were five of them, but then maybe a man with a gun. But what could he have wanted with them? And in the dark, when they left their car, wasn't there a good chance that they could have rushed him, knocked him over, fought back in the dark? Two had served in the army, and while not necessarily meaning that they'd been trained to fistfight or self-defence, but there were five of them. But if someone had abducted them, how did he manage to hold all five of them in a trailer for weeks at a time without them fighting back? And even more, how did they get to that trailer? It was more than waist-high in snow. How did they walk 20 miles in waist-high snow? And why did they do it? They didn't even have suitable shoes or clothes to go even half a mile in that weather. How did they get there? And where were they going? Why were they going there? Why were they leaving the safety of the car? What was it that terrified them so much that they fled in the night? To certain death? Did one of them get spooked by something and they all got frightened and just left the car? But it must have been something so terrible. And remembering, of course, that the car had reached the end, it was up against a snowdrift, so the only way to get out of there would have been to reverse. So they couldn't move the car. What did they see that terrified them so much that they felt that they were sitting ducks if they stayed in the car? What were they running from that night? What was so terrifying? What was out there that night to cause these men such unimaginable fear? Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. There are more episodes like this on Patreon. 
if you look for Steph Young Masquerade Podcast. Or I have a website, which is Steph Young Author, where you can find some of the books that some of these stories come from.